passage from scriptures together. And if you want to follow uh, reading tonight, we'll be looking at Matthew 16, verses 1 to 12. But uh, I want to just start with a very, very brief um, passage from chapter 13. Just verse 33. If we could have that, Sarah, that would be great. If you're finding it really warm in here, that's my fault, sorry. But came back from holiday, felt it was cold, whacked the heating up. I've only got three layers on, trust me. Can't get Brazil out of me. So this is a parable that Jesus told, and it's one of the shortest parables. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's there before you. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 30 kilograms of flour until it worked through all the dough. And then on into chapter 16. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus testing him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. And if you just pause there and look at the previous passage, Jesus has just fed 4,000 people with just a couple of loaves of bread. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees say, come on, Jesus, show us a sign. He replied, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. And Jesus then left them and went away. And when they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The disciples discussed this among themselves and said, is it because we didn't bring any bread? Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it that you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's kind of one of those in-between passages. And um, theme tonight, if you've not picked it up, is yeast. Those of you who are really smart, pick that up already. Let's just pray. Father God, we pray that you give us understanding of this passage and Jesus' words and his warning to the disciples, particularly about the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We pray, Lord, that your word would be um, food for us day by day. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Now, yeast is amazing. Now, when I talk about yeast and baking, um, it doesn't come across with huge conviction because I know nothing about baking. It's like Edward talking about football. It just, just doesn't make sense. And, um, but my wife is a great baker. And um, so I've seen what goes on. And um, yeast is indeed amazing. Not if you look up the dictionary definition, which I did, because the dictionary definition that I found in the Oxford Dictionary was yeast, a grayish yellow fungus substance obtained especially from fermenting malt liquors and used as a fermenting agent to raise bread, etc. Doesn't sound very amazing at all. But it is amazing. Although each yeast cell, apparently, is just a hundredth of the size of a grain of sand, it can leaven 250 times its own weight of flour. And when I read this parable that Jesus said, I had to ask Hermie, how much is 30 kilograms flour? And um, so here we have as an illustration, one kilogram of flour. So a tiny, a tiny piece of yeast can work through 30 bags of flour and would produce probably a hundred loaves of bread. Isn't that amazing? And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is like that. It permeates, it penetrates, it works through everything. And what seems insignificant, just like the parable of the mustard seed, when you've ever got a mustard seed in your hand, Jesus uses it in the same kind of way. So if you're making bread or beer or wine or marmite, yeast is indispensable. So Jesus compares it to the kingdom of heaven. But then in the other passage that we read, he says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Because it too penetrates and permeates and works through but not in a good way. The yeast that he talks about there is a sort of stealthy destroyer. We know that yeast can ruin produce like cheese or meat. It can produce nasty infections in humans as well. And as Hermie told me, when it dies, it's horrible and smelly. But Jesus uses this yeast in the context here as a picture of infection and corruption. Now, if you know your Bibles, and most of you will know your Bibles very well and your Old Testament, you will know that yeast has a history with the Israelites. And they have a whole festival, don't they? The festival of unleavened bread. And a week in the year when they would abstain from yeast, not only abstain from it, but they would clear their houses of any scrap of yeast, clear it out of their homes, almost in a way of cleansing and then they would remember their covenant with God. They would remember their deliverance, particularly out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt under God's mighty hand. How they had to leave in a hurry. They had no time to prove the bread. They had bread without yeast. And they left under the protection of the blood of the lamb. You remember that. They sacrificed the lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, and the angel of death came and passed over. 
So in chapter 13, having likened the kingdom of God to yeast, here in chapter 16, Jesus warns that this other yeast is something that they need to guard against. Guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Because that yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees is a spirit of slavery. One of the favorite songs that we're singing as a church right now is, we're no longer a slave to fear, we're children of God. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees carried with them a spirit of slavery, of legalism, of works. They had died. Something had died and gone smelly or corrupt. Now, when you read about the Pharisees, certainly in the Gospels, and Jesus' encounters with them, they're not really seen in a good light. You know, when you use the word Pharisee now, it's not a good thing that we use it. We, we perhaps use it in terms of someone who's, who's lost in tradition and, and legalistic. And Jesus, you know, doesn't mince his words when he encounters the Pharisees. I mean, we're used to Jesus' grace and love and how he reaches out to everybody. But when he encounters Pharisees, when he encounters teachers of the law, he doesn't hold back. He calls them hypocrites. He calls them whitewashed tombs. Beautiful on the outside, but dead on the inside. He calls them blind guides who shut the door of the kingdom in people's faces. Yet the Pharisees, or what their name means, separated ones, had once been a vibrant group of synagogue planters, church planters, as it were who carried with them a spirit of revival. That had been their history. And over the years, that passion had been lost and suffocated and died. And it was replaced by religion. Which we know is something that is man-made. And bankrupt and empty. And their religion was based on performance and rules and traditions. They even became critical of the the very things of God. They had succumbed to the yeast of hypocrisy. Looking good on the outside, but ugly and dead on the inside. And that criticism of them that Jesus lays against them, they shut the door of the kingdom in people's faces. Imagine that being said. You shut the door of the kingdom in people's faces. Do you know I hear that said sometimes, not in those exact words, but when people who have been put off Jesus by the church. It's as if sometimes the church shuts the door of the kingdom in people's faces. The Pharisees had become so blind that they could not see God in the face of Jesus. But they weren't alone. There was another group, Pharisees and the Sadducees. Sadducees were sworn enemies of the Pharisees. They'd never really got on together. The Sadducees were like the ruling class 
of Israel. They were the aristocrats, the upper class. They dominated the temple. They dominated the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council made up of priests and elders and scribes who governed the internal affairs of Israel at that time. And the Sadducees lived by a spirit of human reason and compromise. And at all costs, maintaining their position of power. And that spirit is at work in our world in lots of places. Power tends to corrupt. And they rejected most of the scriptures as well. They held on to the first five books of Moses, but they would not accept the prophets and the Psalms and the history books. Just the books of the law. Unlike the Pharisees, the Sadducees denied the supernatural. They denied life after death. They denied the resurrection. They denied eternal life. They denied miracles and the existence of angels and demons. And they'd cozied up to Herod and Rome for return for political position and power and the freedom to raise taxes. And they profited from the temple taxes. Now the passage that we read about the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees comes just after Jesus has made a trip into Gentile territory. He's even gone as far up into what we would now call Lebanon, Tyre and Sidon. He'd met that woman and healed the daughter of a Canaanite woman. And he describes that woman as a woman of great faith. It's a, it's a kind of foreshadow of the mission of Jesus that would go way beyond the children of Israel. And then as he returns back into Galilee, the story of the feeding of the 4,000. And then as he returns, he finds the Pharisees and Sadducees had made an unholy alliance. They hated each other, but they'd come together to oppose Jesus. And then they ask Jesus for a sign. Show us a sign from heaven. Both of them see Jesus as a threat to their status and position and join forces to get rid of Jesus. The yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees had penetrated right through them. And so Jesus warns the disciples. And there's that really funny bit when they forget to take bread. Jesus has just fed the 4,000. They've had all these basketfuls left over. And someone, I don't know who it was. Was it Peter? Maybe. Someone forgot to bring the bread. And Jesus says, be on guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I just love it when the disciples just... (gasps) Is it because we forgot the bread? It's your fault. It's not well, no. And Jesus looks right through them and says no. But he is warning them. As he warns the church today about the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Because that yeast, we can see so easily infecting our 21st century society and even 
our 21st century church as well. Power, status, money, hypocrisy, tradition, and they can lose their way. And there's a challenge to the church to compromise as the society takes all these things on board. There's a challenge to the church to compromise, lose its way, lose its effectiveness, lose sight of its mission. The really depressing news of church growth around the world is that the good news is the church is growing phenomenally. Phenomenally. The bad news is that in the West, and particularly across Europe as well, the church is in sheer decline. Sheer decline. It's estimated that uh, 300 churches in terms of congregations are closing their doors for good every year here. And we would be tempted at some times to think that we're losing the spiritual battle. But we forget that Jesus says, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So what's happened when churches close? What's happened when churches lose their way? It is not that the enemy has had a victory. It is that the people of God have taken their eyes off him and have lost their way. And Jesus has said, I'm going to close you down. What do I base that on? Base that on a couple of passages in Revelation, the letters to the churches. Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, which was the most brilliant of churches. If you read the story of the church of Ephesus, John was there for a time. It was the most amazing, thriving church. And Jesus says to it, repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. And if you go to Ephesus now, where's the church? Or he says to Laodicea, he says, you're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I stand at the door and knock. I know I use that evangelistically many times at Alpha, but it's the Holy Spirit saying, I stand at the door and knock, will you let me in because you're going to die without me. You know, Satan cannot overcome the church. Look at the, the history of persecution against the church. Every time the enemy seeks to wipe out the church, the church thrives. It has to take a hit for a time, but it thrives. Think of China and all that's happened there. You know, the most amazing growth of the church in China. We have no idea whether it's 100 million believers or... It's phenomenal. And across our world, Jesus promised he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. But Jesus warns, do not be taken in by the yeast 
of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we have to say to our shame sometimes in church history, if you've ever studied down through church history, that again and again the church loses its way. Why did we need a reformation? Because it's lost its way. We need another reformation. And Jesus removes that deadly cell before it can spread and infect the rest of the body. Where the church loses its first love, where the church grows lukewarm, where the church turns in on itself and becomes just hypercritical of itself, it loses its mission and dies. It might remain there as a monument and as a relic, but the life of God has gone. The yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Denying the uniqueness of Christ. It's incredible that you hear church debates on denying the uniqueness of Christ. The presence of the Holy Spirit. The church allowing 21st century reason and worldview to sit in judgment upon Scripture. But the church will not be overcome because Jesus has promised. And he loves his church. And he will not allow the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees to taint his bride or its message. And that's why I needed to read the passage about the parable of the yeast. Because Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and kneaded it into 30 kilograms of flour and it went through the whole dough. Because the kingdom of heaven is unstoppable. It is unstoppable. The good news is unstoppable. And the enemy's yeast is always outpaced by the yeast of the kingdom of God. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's a warning we need to take seriously as a church ourselves. That we never get lost from what God has called us to be and to do. I always struggle with, you know, why, why do revivals stop? It always used to kind of fascinate me. Why do revivals come and go? Why does it stop? Why do churches experience amazing growth and then suddenly it plateaus and it, and it stops? I don't know the answers to that, but what I do know is that if we keep our eyes on Jesus, if we keep doing the things that he wants us to do, then it is unstoppable, the kingdom of heaven. So which yeast do we want? It's a no-brainer. The yeast of the kingdom of heaven. Shall we pray together? Father God, we